All right. Kristen, do you want me to go ahead and start or you want to wait? Okay. All right. So hi, everybody. Thank you for attending this author interview here at Stacks Book Club. I'm happy to be here. Matt, thank you for being here. How Absolutely. are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Awesome. All right. Let me move that a little closer. All right. How's that? Can you guys hear him okay? Yep. Yeah? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Okay, so first, a quick introduction. My name is Vicki Lan. I am the host of Speculative Sandbox Podcast. Um, I'm basically your audio playground for creative storytellers, and I have stickers in lieu of business cards on the back table, and they're free. So if you want to check me out, I am anywhere you stream podcasts, including Audible and Spotify. And then, of course, we have Matt Mendez here, and I will be reading his bio, but before I do that, some quick housekeeping. Thank you, first and foremost, to Crispin and Lizzie, the owners of Stacks Book Club, for hosting this event and also creating Stacks Book Club because this is a great place for us to all gather in Oro Valley. So let's give them a hand. And then we have from Pine Reads Reviews, we have Stephanie, Aruna, Emily, and Kelly. Did I get it all right? Okay, perfect. <laughs> Uh, thank you guys for being here. Pine Reads Review is a U of A uh, organization. And do you want to, does anyone want to talk about it a little bit? Yay. <laughs> the best way to do this. Here, let me. Can I just copy to the? Yeah. Okay. So Pine Reads Review is a U of A literary organization. We cover children's and mostly young adult novels. And we publish a lot of reviews, interviews, and blogs on our website. And we try to reach out to the local community to uplift like, a lot of diverse and debut authors. Um, and that's basically us. You can check out our website, pinereadsreview.com. And we just started a podcast, actually, Turn the Page, which is on Apple and Spotify. We're trying to get it on other platforms, but those are the two we have it on right now. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Okay, so let's break down what we're going to do here tonight. First and foremost, I'm going to go over, um, over, okay, first of all, did you know that it's National Novel Writing Month right now? NaNoWriMo? Do we have any writers in the room? Yes. All right. All right. Matt, are you, are you writing anything this month? Uh, not a novel. Not a novel? But oh, okay. I am writing, yes. All right. Are you writing this month? Awesome. Okay. So for National Novel Writing Month, um, that's when writers try to write 50,000 words of a story in one month, which is insane, but it can be done. I've done it. I've done it twice, actually. Um, so it's a lot of fun. And actually, Stax Book Club is going to host a NaNoWriMo write-in uh, this November 29th from 5 to 8? 5 to 8 p.m. So keep an eye out for that. That's going to be a great opportunity to get together. There's going to be trivia, um, light literary trivia. So um, come on over and get to meet other writers, talk about your projects, and just have fun. Okay, so you ready for your bio? Yeah, sure. Okay, all right. Let's do it. Is this <laughs> okay. working? All the way up? There you go. How about now? There we yes. go. Yes. Okay. All right. I'm going to read your whole bio. All right, it's okay. long. It is long. Okay, let's do this. <laughs> all right, Matt Mendez is the author of The Broke Hearts. Barely Missing Everything, and the short story collection, Twitching Heart. Barely Missing Everything has been called a, quote, searing portrait of two Mexican-American families by Publishers Weekly 
and accessible and artful in a starred review by Kirkus. The New York Times says Mendez has an uncanny ability to capture the aimless bluster of young boys posturing at confidence. What an interesting description. Barely Missing Everything was named a 2019 Best YA Book by Kirkus, 17 Magazine, NBC Latino, and Texas Monthly. It was a Georgia Peach Book Award for Teen Readers nominee, awarded second place in the International Latino Book Awards, a Junior Library Guild selection, and a Land of Enchantment Black Bear Book Award winner. So great job. Thank you. Very accomplished. So like many of his characters, Matt grew up in El Paso, Texas, and continues to love and live in the Southwest, now in Tucson, Arizona. He is a military veteran and earned his MFA from the U of A, where he has taught creative writing. He is the father of two daughters that he loves very fiercely. And you can follow him by finding him, Matt G. Mendez, on Instagram and threads. All right. Oh, nice. Okay. So we're going to get started on questions. After questions, we'll open up the floor for anyone to ask a question, and then we'll move for signings and opportunity to chat. Sound good? Okay. All right. So we're going to start you off easy with an icebreaker question. Here. Sounds good. Okay. We are at Stacks, and there are drinks there. So what is your favorite drink order, just in general? What do you love to drink? Uh, I'm mostly now just a beer guy. I love okay. to drink beer and Chris is lucky enough to get me uh, a Papago Orange Blossom, which is currently my favorite beer. Okay. All right. They also make a blueberry beer, which is pretty great. Not sure if you've had that. That's fantastic. Do you do beer yeah. flights yet? Okay. I think I have an idea then. What you should bring next. <laughs> yeah, that would probably get me in trouble doing beer <laughs> yeah. flights here. But yeah, I enjoy a nice beer, but I'm not kind of. I love a nice craft beer, but I'm also like a cheap beer guy. Oh, okay. And yeah. we'll drink tons of tall boys and cheap beers and like the characters in my book will enjoy Ford every once in a while. Yeah. I'm also that guy. Sometimes we'll do just, that. that. It makes sense. <laughs> okay. So let's get going. Please take a moment to tell us about yourself and your latest project, The Broke Hearts. So, you know, like my bio said, I'm, I'm from El Paso originally, and I've kind of always been like a Southwest guy. I grew up in El Paso and lived there till I was 18 and then joined the Air Force and I wanted to travel the world and see all sorts of different places and they sent me to New Mexico oh. right out of the gate. So <laughs> so I didn't go very far originally. So right back in the Southwest and in the desert and was stationed there for, for three years. Mm. So I didn't really get to go far originally, although from New Mexico, I did get to travel and kind of go to different places right away. So I went to Korea, to Germany, to Italy, all over the United States, but only in short bursts where they would send me TBY. And that's those experiences I had in the Air Force is kind of uh, a lot of what I drew in or drew from while riding the Brokarts, which is uh, about two young boys who were out of high school. So The Broke Hearts is uh, it's a, it's a complimentary book to my first novel, Barely Missing Everything. So it's not a direct sequel, but it's a, a continuation and a complimentary story. So Barely Missing Everything is about two boys, or three boys actually, who were in their senior year of high school. And if you remember high school, the feeling I always used to have is like, what am I going to do after high school? What do I do when I get out of here? And these big dreams you have. And the Brokart is, all right, now I'm out of high school and I'm in life. What's happening now? And 
the realization that these big hopes and dreams you have are what you thought they were. And for me, when I got out of high school, I joined the Air Force immediately, got into the Air Force and immediately thought, I have made a huge, huge mistake. I went to basic training. I had some mean staff sergeants yelling at me. I was away from all my friends. I was away from all my family. And then I got orders to New Mexico, which is not where I wanted to be. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I had just done to my entire life. And I was alone and afraid and scared. And as soon as I got to base, I got orders to deploy within two months. So that's kind of the position I wanted to write from, that kind of unknown. And I was, you know, barely 19 years old. I thought, what a position to be in at 19 years old, to be this kind of afraid kid. And that's what, that's where I wanted to kind of write from when I started the Brokarts, at least for one of the characters. Gotcha. So according to your young entertainment interview, I'm going to quote something you said. You said, barely missing everything was your attempt to understand destiny and choice, while the Brokarts was your way of answering the question, how do you live with a broken heart? So what lessons have you learned about this very question while writing this book? How to live with a broken heart? Yeah. That's so that was the entire novel. So I, Barely Missing Everything came out in 2019. And I had been trying to write the sequel or the, comp, the companion book to that one, the follow-up, in 2018 before it came out. I had been working on the story of Danny and of JD. And I couldn't quite capture kind of the heart of the book to kind of excuse my pun mm -hmm. and it wasn't until 2020 came and we were all kind of sharing this collective tragedy and this collective kind of heartbreak that kind of COVID forced us to confront that it really started to make sense to me what what kind of heartbreak we all kind of sit in all the time so at the end of barely missing everything and I'm just gonna go ahead and spoil that book because it's been since 2019 so I think we're safe at the end of Barely Missing Everything, Juan, who was the, one of the main characters, is killed by the police. And his two best friends, Danny and JD, have to live with that heartbreak while still looking at their uncertain future. So they have this huge, huge heartbreak that they have to kind of deal with, this trauma, this sadness, and they still have this future ahead of them. So they're trying to negotiate, how do I look for a future for myself while still dealing with heartbreak and then the guilt that 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 leaves them with the survivor's guilt and it wasn't until 2020 well we're all kind of sharing this collective sadness and this heartbreak that i was able to kind of write from this place of isolation and feeling that kind of that same guilt that i was able to kind of put that story together from that dealing with my own sense of heartbreak, my own sense of isolation. I was dealing with some own things in my personal life that kind of reframe the story and dealing with the loss of my father, the loss of some of my friends, and this kind of sadness that was there that I kind of really put me in the mindset to write from Danny's perspective and from JD's perspective and also Danny's father's perspective, that the story began to coalesce and become something that I could write from, from an experiential point of view. I really appreciate that you explored all those perspectives because I think examining generational experiences and how they kind of affect each other is, is actually a great form of, 
of healing too, from the writer's perspective. Um, you also said people with broken hearts tend to break hearts. Can you explain what you mean by this? Sure, it's the people who are hurt, hurt other people, right? So Danny's father, the Sarge, and barely missing everything, was kind of this two-dimensional character. He was really direct, kind of, you know, a yes or no sir kind of guy, and he was really forcing Danny to kind of live this life that he wanted him to live. And in the early drafts of the Brocards, he kind of continued to be that character. He was a retired army sergeant, and he really wanted his son to go to school, to go to college, and to kind of live this life that he wanted for him without ever asking Danny if that's what he wanted, if he wanted to go to college. And he did it in this really direct and domineering way. And I'm a father now, and I'm watching my kids grow up, and I started to look at myself in the mirror, and one day I turned around and kind of looked at myself, and I wondered, oh, when did my dad show up? Just kind of looking at my own face and how I've aged over the years. It was just a quick glance. I thought, oh, I'm becoming my dad. And then I wondered, like, well, am I just physically, if I'm turning into my dad, I wonder if how I interact with my girls, if I'm also becoming my dad, if I'm treating them the way my dad would treat me. Mm-hmm. So I started thinking of the Sarge and the story and how he's treating Danny. How did the Sarge become the Sarge? How did he become this strict guy? How did he become this guy who thinks he's helping his son but isn't really listening, who's directing his son, who's trying to force his dream on him? Where does that come from? How did he become this person who doesn't listen necessarily? but who thinks he's helping, who thinks he's loving his son as best he can. How did he become this person? So then I started writing the sergeant's stories. And lo and behold, the sergeant himself has a dad. (laughs) And his dad is kind of the same way. So it just becomes this cycle where fathers and sons treat each other the certain way. And then JD also has a dad. So the Brokars becomes this father-son story where I was really interested in how fathers and sons act with each other and how fathers tend to break their sons' hearts early on in order to prepare them for the world. And that's what I really was exploring in the book. So when we look at the target audience for this book, it's YA, so teenage boys. Do you think it is easy for boys to kind of get that perspective on their fathers? or And how could... Can books like these help them with that? Or is it something that we can only do later in life when we have the ability to reflect and have the experiences as parents to say, oh, that may be what my own parents were thinking. How, how, how can we help children also understand those different perspectives? I'm certainly hoping a book like this helps them. It took me writing this book to kind of help me look at my dad and kind of understand our own relationship. Mm-hmm. So writing a book like this really helps me understand how I think about the world. For me, I'm always asking myself questions. And when I write, I'm trying to figure out what I think about certain things and how I think about the world themselves. I don't consider myself to be too smart a person. So when I sit down to write, I'm answering questions for myself. Mm -hmm. And the characters kind of help me explore the world and help me make sense of what I'm trying to think about something really complicated. So, you know, what does it mean to have a broken heart? How does it mean to function when you don't feel like 
you know, you're loved or lovable, which is what I think those boys feel in the book. They feel unloved and they don't feel like they're lovable people. And how does Danny become that? How does JD feel that way? At the end of Barely Missing Everything, his best friend, who is somebody he loved, is gone. And he looks at the rest of his family and thinks, I don't have a home here anymore. So he leaves. And he joins the Air Force. And his goal is to make movies and to make art. And then that becomes something that seems unattainable to him. And he just feels lost and homeless. So how does JD end up there? Mm. Danny, his family has put all this pressure on him to go to school and to become this success. And he doesn't even know what that means. And it's coming from a person who he can't connect with with his dad. And he feels if he doesn't do this, that he'll be unlovable. Mm -hmm. And when he goes to school, he's not successful. And he feels, again, if I can't do this, will my dad love me? And he's, so he's been heartbroken because he feels like he's you know, unsuccessful and failing. Mm -hmm. So to me, like, how do these boys get here? And it's you know, from the relationship with their fathers, and then their fathers, you know, are also have had that done to them, but they've also had their hearts broken. So I'm like, how did we get here? So I just want to explore those relationships. And that required me to kind of explore my own relationship with my father, which, mm. you know, was hard. It required me to do a lot of thinking, a lot of writing, a lot of drafting, mm -hmm. and to kind of figure out how these relationships work, how friendship works. Danny and JD's friendship is a tenuous friendship, and it, it's a lot of me just kind of sitting down and ruminating and reading and thinking and answering these kind of questions for myself. So I'm hoping a book like this, there's not necessarily answers in there, but there's a lot of like emotion in those mm -hmm. books. I'm hoping kids can identify with that. In addition to intergenerational relationships, you, as you were mentioning, um, there's a lot of male friendships. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges males may face today where they can really benefit from the support structure of male friendships? I think male friendship is a super complicated thing. I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, like pressure that society puts on males to... I guess it's ill-defined, I guess, what male friendships are. There's a, there's a lack of uh, closeness or like the ability to open up to each other. And I think JD and Danny have this friendship where they feel like they have to talk a lot of uh, like crap to each mm -hmm. other in order to connect. And then there's a lot of judgment on that, on them going back and forth and giving each other a lot of hell and whether or not that that is how they're close and whether or not that means they're close and they go back and forth with themselves and whether or not they're friends still because them giving each other a lot of grief they're unsure whether that is enough for them to be friends and they put a lot of judgment on themselves for how they connect with each other and the frequency in which they connect with each other and they're uncertain about their level of friendship which is they don't have a lot of confidence in their friendship. And I think guys can are doing that with themselves now. I think there's a level of expectation where people want to be close and there's a lot of disconnect of what it means to be close with guys now. Guys are now asking themselves, what does it mean to be friends with each other? Mm -hmm. And 
I know me and my friends, we can joke around with each other and give each other a lot of grief and then still consider ourselves to be great friends without really opening up to each other. And I think over time, we can lack a certain closeness. And I think this book can show that you can have a little bit of intimacy and share a little bit of a more of a bond by, you know, I don't want to say trauma bonding, mm -hmm. but that's what Jani and JD do. They have this bond and there's these moments where they connect on serious issues and finally kind of break past that kind of boyish back and forth and reveal their true selves to each other. Okay. Before I move on, Crispin, how are we doing on time? Doing good? Okay. Moving from themes to a little bit more of the technique. Um, curious to, to get your thoughts as a writer's perspective now. So El Paso, Texas is where you grew up and you now live in Tucson. Both locations appear in this book. When shaping the environment for the purpose of your story, how do you know what to take from real life and what can be embellished or reinterpreted through a creative lens? Oh, that's a pretty good question. I try to... I try to take from real life the things that have kind of informed my attitudes and then kind of embellish a lot. Okay. So, like, experiences that have kind of, like, shaped my attitudes is what I want to put in there. But, like, facts I try to make up wholesale. <laughs> because, you know, I don't want... Usually I have friends that will be like, They'll look at characters, they'll read the characters, they'll be like, well, that's obviously me, right? And mm -hmm. uh, have this happen all the time. Anybody who's a writer who reads a book will have friends come and ask them, is this me in the story? Is that me in the story? And they will automatically identify themselves as the main character, which happens quite frequently. Mm. So usually that's not the case. I usually tell everybody that every character in their story is just me. I'm all the characters, <laughs> <laughs> at least some version of these them. Mm -hmm. which is kind of true but usually there's some experience in there that's happened to me that's kind of emotionally true that's happened and then most of the facts are kind of are fabricated okay one of my favorite examples of reading a book that takes place in tucson um it's called uh, the lion game and in one of the scenes the characters get stuck in a, on the train tracks at orange grove mm -hmm. do the does the can that happen right now? No. <laughs> so like, I remember reading that and I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> it took me completely out. But like, that's why I'm always fascinated by when people use real world environments and they play with them. And like, what is the line between reality and what you can kind of make fiction? Oh, sure. I'm trying to create like this complete universe that is essentially one I'm creating. So like the neighborhood in El Paso that all these stories take place in both Barely Missing Everything the Broke Hearts is probably now this completely fictional neighborhood by now. Okay, yeah. So there's there's a few signposts that are real, that neighborhoods are real, but by now at this point, it's completely this universe that I have created now. Okay. So I would nice. say there's very little reality. It's the in those, Matt Tucson universe now. For sure, yeah. yeah. So I think <laughs> both of those neighborhoods now that I'm creating in Tucson, even though DM's in the book and DM's a very real place. Yes. But like the trail where where JD's running in the book is completely fictional, and those neighborhoods that those boys are walking in used to be real, but they were you know kind of pieced together from memory, and they're 
those houses are have been you know kind of gentrified by now so those places exist mostly in my memory now mm. and it's a completely kind of different universe so i think the feel is probably real for people who were there kind of emotionally i think those places feel true but they're not really like factual places anymore gotcha okay in your young entertainment interview you wrote a majority of this book in your car while your daughters are going to folklorical practice so a common question asked by writers is how do you write a book while balancing a family and life and it sounds like you've worked out a system so how much is impacted by the support shown by your family and peers? And what advice do you have for other writers? Oh, for other writers, just don't be precious on where you write or how you write. I think a lot of writers, especially really young writers, feel like they have to be inspired to write or to feel motivated to write. Just write like you work out. Or like you run. If you have a running schedule or you work out at the same time every day and you just go to the gym, write like that. Have a schedule and then just do the thing. You'd be surprised how much you can get done if you just sit down there and like, well, I go run every day at the same time every day. Sometimes I run really slow and it's terrible. Sometimes it's a great run. It's the same with writing. I get up, I write at the same time. Sometimes it's 200 words and it's one paragraph and it's an awful slog. Sometimes it's an amazing writing day and I knock a whole bunch out. So you're going to have days like that, good and bad. And then just kind of stick to the schedule. And if you don't have a great day, that's also fine. Just forgive yourself. You did the allotted time. You did what you had to do that day. And then just be good with it. And then move on with your day. So like you were saying, I wrote a lot. Of, I wrote most of the bro carts in my car. My daughters, who are 9 and 11, they dance folklorico, and they're brilliant dancers, and they're wonderful. I wish they were here today so I could embarrass them. But they're at folklorico right now doing a performance, so they're not here. But they practice three times a week for two hours, which is a lot of time. So either I could hang out with the other dance moms and, and just you know chit-chat all day, or I could work. So I decided to buy a little... A little tray that hooks up to my steering wheel and I could work so that's you know six hours if my math is right in my car with coffee writing wow. a book so it was a lot of time that I could write so I didn't take away any time from my personal life I just wrote in my car like a weirdo in South Tucson <laughs> well, I'm gonna take your advice my daughter goes to swim class once a week so I'm gonna start sitting amongst the parents watching their kids read the one typing. <laughs> yeah, I actually would have to, I, I tried doing that with them in the room. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to leave now. And then I would go in my car and write so I would be alone. Yeah. Has <laughs> anyone else ex experienced this when you're reading or writing and people are just drawn to you? They want to know what's going on. Like, and you're like, I'm busy. <laughs> yep. All right. I have one final question. Um, you use different storytelling perspectives throughout the book. Third person, first person, screenwriting. Did I get all of the perspectives? I use a little second person like, too. Oh, these you did, yeah. yeah. Um, can you explain <laughs> how you wove these different styles together to tell a cohesive story? And from a writing craft perspective, what fundamental rules did you apply or kind of keep in your head to make sure the story made sense the whole time? I just love kind of being wild when I write stuff and being able to try different things and luckily I have an editor who lets me kind of explore different things and kind of try different things when I'm writing and barely missing everything I write from the perspective of a math test hmm. which was pretty fun so 
for me, stories and writing should be a place to play and to try different things. Uh, when I was writing the bro cards, like I talked a little bit earlier about writing, wanting to write the Sarge, who's Danny's dad. I wanted to write his story. And I was, as I was beginning to write, I was kind of inspired by the idea of Loteria cards. I'm not sure if anybody's ever seen Loteria cards or played Loteria. It's this really fun Mexican bingo game. And the art on those cards are really kind of fascinating. They're like these really beautiful little cards. And they kind of look like tarot cards, which, you know, kind of ins inspires kind of like mysticism and the idea of, of like, you know, like the future and all kind of mysticism so i kind of love the symbolism of those cards and then the idea of just kind of randomness or like the kind of bingo game provides so i wanted to kind of capture those two ideas together and write these flash fiction pieces for the sarge where i was just taking snapshots of the sarge's life and have them be both symbolic and then kind of random pieces from his life that kind of showed how the sarge became the sarge and write these flashbacks showing his childhood growing up and they had to be really really short and they had to be in second person or in third person be really really short pieces and they allowed me to write you know these kind of really kind of lyrical pieces that I thought are they're probably my favorite pieces of the book and I was able to do that and kind of keep those in my head while writing these alternating point of views of where you get to see Danny Danny's story you got to see JD's story then these these little pieces of the Sarge growing up all kind of interspersed together. And to me, the, the stories kind of paint this overall view of, you know, fathers and sons and, you know, kind of boyhood and friendship and then manhood all together in this kind of one story that's not really too didactic, where it's not telling you what it's like to grow up and become a man and be a father and a son, but kind of gives you this pulled back view of, these are what these boys' lives are like, and this is how young people grow up to become men and then fathers. Mm, okay. Well, Crispin, did you want to share your tattoo? Yeah, speaking of our talking, everybody actually have a look at me a card tattoo. Oh, right on. Uh, <laughs> it's like an artistic interpretation. Paloda got tattooed after Lynn and I got married because I grew up playing Loteria as well. Yeah. And love the idea of putting that cultural piece. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, so for the next segment, did you want to read a portion of your book? Do you guys want to hear a portion of the book or do you want to go straight into open Q&A? Read. Read? Okay. Read, okay. All right, <laughs> All right well, I'll read one of those Loteria chapters and that starts the book. So this piece is uh, the opening of the book itself. It's called El Soldado. Daniel Villanueva waited until after dinner to tell Lapa about the fight, about the almost fight. He stood in the doorway of his father's furniture workshop and was trying to tell him how he'd run away, but it was going all wrong. The small standalone garage, made mostly of rock and mortar, was busy with work. 
like it was almost every night after Appa finished eating and got started fixing the junk furniture he'd rescued from alleyways and dumpsters around town. Outside there wasn't a cloud in the night sky. The stars above like pairs of unblinking eyes looking down to see what Appa was going to do after Daniel spilled his guts. But Abba didn't take his attention from the dining room table he was restoring. Continuing to stain the once busted legs he'd redesigned and replaced the night before, moving the brush up and down the curved fixtures in precise strokes. Abba was always like this, hard-working, hard-focused, hard. Daniel inhaled the chemical smell of the dark cherry stain along with the scent of cut lumber and cigarette smoke. The single opened window in the room not enough to clear the air. You should never run away, Appa said. He took a drag from the cigarette that had been burning in the ashtray beside him, the butt glowing, not from a fight. I wanted to do something, but I couldn't breathe. Daniel's brain had blanked after Adan shoved him in the middle of the chest, and all the air had rushed from his body. His thoughts had locked up like a seized engine. Appa's cheap little radio was playing in the background. Los Lobos, La Pistola, y El Corazón, buzzing faintly from the cracked speakers. The radio was on the corner of a work table beside a box of nails and a hammer by different sized chisels and handsaws, everything covered in a layer of sawdust. Y aquí siempre paso la vida, con la pistola y el corazón. No sé cómo amarte, no sé cómo abrazarte, Porque no se me deja este dolor que tengo yo. You could breathe enough to run away, Appa said, raising an eyebrow. Seems like running was exactly the something you wanted to do. Daniel could feel the gaze of a billion stars on him, but not a single one burning as hot as Appa's, who'd finally turned to look at him. The whites of his eyes were red irritated by the smoke and chemicals in the air. The rest of him by Daniel. If you say so, Daniel replied, wondering if his father would drop everything and chase him if he bolted. I don't remember thinking nothing. I just ran. Daniel's seventh grade class had been at PE, divided into teams and made to play basketball. He spent most of the game trying to go unnoticed to make it through without touching the ball or another person. But Adan Flores noticed him. He'd been watching Daniel as he ran back and forth along the sideline, being somewhat close to the action, but also keeping a safe distance, like the game was a swarm of bees he was trying to avoid. Adan was a classic bully. A kid who'd been held back a grade or two, was way bigger and stronger than everyone else, but somehow, terrible at sports, unless you counted fighting. You ran because you were scared, Appa told Daniel now. That's what taking the easy way looks like. That's what running from a fight is. Being afraid makes you do the easy and usually wrong thing. Alan had been missing baskets the entire game, the goon chucking the ball every time he got his hands on it. The game had gone so off the rails, his teammates quit passing to him, 
and everything had slowed to an unenjoyable standstill. Seeming to get what was happening, Avan angrily snatched the ball from a teammate and dribbled directly toward Daniel, who had been standing by the sideline at midcourt. Daniel saw him coming. Avan charging like a horse that had just tossed its rider and now running free. But Daniel didn't move out of the way. Instead, he slightly turned, dropping his shoulder to absorb the impact as Avan lowered his. Boom. The two boys collided, and to Daniel's shock, and everyone else's, he wasn't launched into outer space. Instead, he was only pushed back a few feet. Avan, however, was knocked backward, losing control of the ball and reaching wildly for it while trying to keep his balance. But he couldn't keep his feet and instead clumsily tripped and collapsed flat on his back, right onto the asphalt, hot from the afternoon sun. For a moment, Daniel stood over Adan, not sure what to do as a crowd formed around them. He looked down at Adan, stupid, stupid. The guy's face was red, his eyes wet. Daniel quickly looked away as the laughing started. Adan jumped to his feet and shoved Daniel square in the chest with the heels of his palms and immediately dropped him, leaving Daniel squirming on the blacktop. His eyes were pitch closed, and as he opened them, he saw, Adan's, he saw Adan's red and black pro wings stepping toward him. Daniel was wearing the exact same pair. It was the brand of knockoff shoes poor parents bought their poor kids. Them looking sort of like a pair of Jordans, but wearing like a kick-me sign. Daniel didn't remember getting to his feet, or the look of rage and humiliation on Adan's face as he turned to run away. Not the roaring laughter of the crowd. Daniel didn't even realize he was running until he zipped past Senora Ramirez's, kicking up the perfectly manicured gravel of her front yard. I'm going to teach you to never run away again, Apoc continued. He put his brush down and lit another cigarette. Took a long drag before exhaling. A twist of smoke curled in the air between them. It wasn't looking at Daniel. Abad wasn't looking at Daniel as he spoke, instead focusing on the still unfinished chairs stacked in the corner of the room. I learned how to be a warrior when I was your age. It's how I made it in the army. How I make it now. Who are you out there fighting now? Daniel couldn't keep from asking. Those chairs? Being a warrior is about doing the hard thing every time. Abbas said, blowing a cloud of smoke and shaking his head. It's not always about actual fighting. He mashed his cigarette into the crowded ashtray and looked hard at Daniel. Sweat soaked through the bandana he wore to keep, from rolling, to keep sweat from rolling into his eyes. His hands were dry and cracked. His face was spots cooked in from the sun. Okay, Appa, Daniel said relief coating his body like a film. That's good to hear. I mean, don't get confused, Appa said, because sometimes it is, and tomorrow you're fighting that boy. The room turned as silent as a graveyard, minus Appa's tiny radio. No sé cómo decirte. No sé cómo explicarte. Que aquí no hay remedio. 
Daniel wondered how he was going to learn to fight one night, to become a warrior. Appa had been in the army, but he never talked about it. He never talked about anything. How could he teach him to fight? How could he teach him anything? Thank you so much for reading that opening chapter. Is it chapter? Yeah, just, it just is. chapter. Yep. Um, that's the visuals are so strong, and I really enjoyed hearing you do the voices. That was really, really neat. Okay, so we're ready to go into the QA portion. How would you like uh, me to do this? Might pass the microphone around. Okay. All right. Any takers? No. <laughs> All right. You sure? This is it. This is the moment you've been waiting for. Okay. All right. So I think the next step is we're going to have Matt over at the table over here. He'll be signing copies and you'll be able to talk to him more one on one. It won't be on the spot like this. So, right yeah. Go ahead and, and thank you so much. It was a pleasure to interview you and get to know you. So, yes. yeah. Thank you, Vicki. Yeah, thank, right. thank you, everyone.